This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore, and we welcome Peter Feynman to the program. How are you doing, Peter? I'm fine today. How are you? Okay. Peter Feynman is the founder and president of the Institute of History, Archaeology, and Education, a nonprofit organization which provides enrichment programs for schools, professional development programs for teachers, public programs, including leading history hostels and uh, teacher hostels to historic sites in the state of New York, promoting county history conferences, the uh, development of paths through history, and a school curriculum that includes local and state history. And Peter, I believe you uh, maybe uh, commonly when you refer to your organization, the Institute of History, Archaeology, and Education, do you call it IHAIR? That's right. Okay. Makes it easier uh, to remember. That's true. And I've seen uh, Peter out and about um, at different uh, history uh, conferences, which he attends, and kind of has his finger on the pulse of what you might call the history uh, community in New York State. And in a previous podcast, we heard from historian uh, Bruce Deerstein about some unrest in the history community. Um, and the uh, way Peter sees it, I believe, but he's going to tell us, is that the history community is having trouble making its voice heard on a statewide basis. Is that what you think? And what do you think can be done about it? Well, that's definitely the issue right there. We don't really have a statewide private organization that represents the history community. So if no one is representing you and your voice isn't heard or you have no voice, then guess what? You don't get anything either. So that's the problem that we have right now. I think as Bruce pointed out, there was an organization that should have been doing this the New York State History Association in Cooperstown, but it hasn't really been doing it, and now officially it's not even going to try. As exemplified by its change in name, it's simply now really an art museum and a farmer's museum. So that really brought the issue to the forefront, that who speaks for the history community? So I've been writing a series of blogs for this, on the state of New York history. That's the name of the blog, and many people get it, like you. And one of the issues in November, late December into January was precisely on this point of now that they, uh, NYSHA is, uh, is out of the business, who's going to step in? Who's going to fill that void and speak on behalf of the history community? Mm. Now, one of your blogs did attract a response from the president of the now museum, Fenimore Art Museum and the Farmers Museum. Uh, and basically what my read of it is that he's saying, well, this is what we've done. I mean, we, we have these two museums to run and this is uh, this is what we do. Right. That response was to a letter or a petition almost that uh, had been circulated or sent to him uh, by Ken Jackson, who's the head of the New York Academy based at Columbia, where he's a teacher. And he, of course, is a longtime advocate of New York State history. 
and uh, he took exception to this name change and direction change by the organization. Ken is also formerly the, the president or director of the New York Historical Society in Manhattan. So he compiled a letter signed by maybe 100 people, historians, prominent people from not just New York State, but elsewhere, and sent it to Paul. And you may be referring to Paul's response. Paul read my blog with that, and he sent me a response to Ken's letter and asked if I would publish it. And I agreed to do that. And that's the one I think you're referring to. Well, I mean, they're out of the picture as far as, you know, being a statewide organization, apparently. So you need a new state organization. Is that hard to create or why isn't that, why are our steps being made to create a new organization that would represent the interests of historians? Well, you're absolutely right. That is what needs to be done. And in another post I wrote, I used as an example the uh, a national organization on behalf of state and local history. It does not have uh, state chapters. It's just a national organization. But I use that as a model to say, here's what we need to do here. I took some things from their mission statement and some of the activities they do and say, we need to do what they're doing on a national level and just do that locally. And I used the tie-in from uh, Terry Abrams, who heads a regional organization out west in western New York, uh, where he had mentioned some programs he had attended with this organization, and he wrote, and I published it, about the lack of any state organization in New York, because when he goes to these events, he sees, he meets people from other states, and they tell him, here's our state organization, here's how many people we have, here's what we're doing, and he comes back here and he sees nothing. So that was, was one uh, conceptual idea of, yes, we need to have some kind of entity. And you can see that right now as we're beginning the new legislative session here in uh, Albany, where different groups have advocacy days, mm -hmm. especially the teachers and the librarians and other groups, uh, parks, and, so, and I go to some of them, tourists. This is where people meet with their state legislatures and ask for specific things. And if you don't ask for anything, you don't get anything. And that's why these are called gets. You know, what are you asking for? What are you going to get? And if you don't ask, you don't get. What we have in the history community is we have a lot of hardworking, well-meaning people who obviously are not in it for the money, because you really can't be if you're in the local historical society, and they're trying as best they can to keep their own organization afloat. In the old days, they used to have member items where they could go to their individual state representative or senator and get a small amount of money and do something, but now those are gone. So where do you go if you need some small sums of money? It's very difficult right now. And the odds are, if you need it in your community, 
there's probably a hundred other communities that have a similar problem. But unless you band together and say we have this issue, uh, then nothing's going to get done. And that's the situation we're in right now. Now, as you well know, there are uh, like law firms uh, that represent all kinds of uh, special interests at the state capitol. But it would seem to me the difficulty that the history community would have is is monetary, isn't it? I mean, to, to go that route, to set up a real lobbying effort like, I don't know what, the uh, funeral directors have or the uh, <laughs> service station owners have, you know, you, you'd have to pay people. Right. Okay. There, there are, yes, there is another organization called the Museum Association of New York. And I don't know if you've ever had Erica Sanger, the executive director, as a guest on your show. If not, you certainly should. Uh, she's based in Troy. Now, she represents museums. So museums includes not only historical museums, but aquariums, zoos, art museums, science museums, and so on. So she's dealing with a broad range of organizations. They have a lobbyist. I should say they. I'm a member of that organization. We have a lobbyist who works part-time for us, and right now their big act is the Museum Education Act, which is to get funding to arrange for transportation for school kids to visit historic sites. And this has been a government effort on her part for a couple of years now. And that's the kind of thing you need on the history side. You have to have something specific you want, and then you have to do what she did or uh, what uh, the lobbyists did and meet with the various legislative assemblies that deal with that, the regents that deal with that, and so on, and say, this is what we need. And mm -hmm. uh, we don't do that. And no. the problem we have here is is that... As a history community, we're very different from some of those other organizations you mentioned. History organizations are chartered by the state education department. So are schools and so are libraries. But schools and libraries are also municipal organizations. The people who work in the schools and the libraries are government employees, and they have a government funding stream. Most historical museums and organizations are private. There are towns and villages and counties and cities that actually do own museums and do operate them and run them the same way a private company, a private organization would, a nonprofit would. But most of the history organizations are private. So we are at a disadvantage with the libraries and the schools, even though history societies are as much part of the fabric of the community as they are or should be. So, but we don't have the funding stream that they have as part of the government, even though we're all chartered by the state education department. Now, you're, you t you're talking about this, you know, commenting uh, on it. You're kind of well known in uh, the field of history. But who, who can bring this about? I mean, how can you uh, create the organization? And, or does anybody step forward to say, yeah, that's a good idea, Peter. I'm going to do this. Well, you raised some good points there. Um, one of the questions we have to decide is, do we create a new organization from scratch? And that means incorporating, getting your 501c3, establishing your board of directors, and building it up from really zero. 
or do we take an existing organization and see if its mission can include much of what I just talked about? And there have been some discussions on both sides that I can't really discuss here on this uh, radio interview, but I, I hope that something will happen. And in fact, after this call, I will have to write some emails to help promote this project. But uh, I think as Bruce pointed out, when the original uh, Nisha was set up, there was one individual who was donating a lot of money. So that always helps if you have somebody with the interest. You may be familiar with the Gilder Lerman Institute that was set up and actually is headquartered in part at the New York Historical Society. And there you have two people who decided to put a lot of money into it, into history, one of whom actually had run for governor of the state of New York. But they focused all their efforts really on national history on New York as part of the United States and not really focused on state history. But yes, there's, if there is a wealthy person listening to your <laughs> to this uh, interview, yes, we do need your help. All right. Well, on that note, I'll pause and insert our plea for funds for the Historians podcast. Yeah. We have a GoFundMe page. It's GoFundMe.com forward slash historians 2018 and uh, your donations help us uh, continue supporting the technical cost and other expenses of producing the podcast uh, if you can uh, visit that website gofundme.com forward slash historians 2018 we also accept donations in the mail make the check out to bob cudmore send to 125 horseman drive scotia new york one two three zero two. We're talking with Peter Feynman, who is a president of the Institute of History, Archaeology, and Education, commonly known as IHAIR. We're talking with him about how uh, the history community in New York State, historical organizations, and people interested in history, uh, can, in a sense, lobby the state or uh, speak uh, on uh, is, issues. Uh, in in the state of New York, um, you you mentioned before that these uh, lobbying organizations uh, want gets. What are they going to get? Well, well ask, what are some of? What do you think? Some what are the gets? I can give uh, you a, you a couple of examples, right? Easy okay. ones. Right now, we, we recently went through the Regional Economic Development Council grants, where they award money throughout New York State. And some of this is you apply indirectly to a given organization like Parks or I Love New York or so on. There's no funding for, the, say, the New York State Museum or for the history community. So why isn't there a pool of funds there that organizations can apply for? So let's take, for example, two prominent things we have right now, the World War I centennial and the suffrage centennial. Suppose you want money to do various things. Where do you turn for that? Every time it's like we're reinventing the wheel, whether it's the uh, War of 1812 bicentennial, Erie Canal, whatever. We're always acting as if these anniversaries taking us by surprise when, of course, we know when they're coming. They're not a surprise. Mm. So why don't we have an entity that we can apply to through the REDC process 
for funding for anniversaries, state anniversaries, local anniversaries, and so on. And so they put a pool of funds there, and different communities, counties, cities, whatever, can apply for funds there the same way they do to NISCA and, and the other organizations of New York State. So here's where we would say, as our ask, we would ask for a certain amount of money to be set aside and Devin Lander and other people in the museum dealing with history would allocate that the same way uh, Rose Harvey does for parks, for organizations that apply for funding from them. A second one is in I Love New York, where we do have this path through history, which we know is a bit of, bit of a joke to say the least. And now we have this $14 million fine because of these I Love New York signs that were put up on the highways, mm -hmm. another fiasco. But I Love New York has funding for the REDC process also. They have quite the capability of saying we are going to earmark a certain portion of our, I think it's $15 million this year, for history organizations to promote path through history. They could do that if they wanted to, or if we asked and lobbied for it, but we don't. So these are just some examples where you can have to go to specific organizations with very specific agendas, specific items. You can't go to them and say, oh, you know, history is really important for the social fabric of the United States, and it's good for all citizens, that we should be aware of our history. That's all fine and good, but that's not going to get you anything in the government. Mm. Now, you would uh, mention the Path Through through History program, and I, even, I knew you were going to talk about it, and I sort of went to the root of it. I looked up Governor Cuomo's, I believe, first, uh, Andrew Cuomo's first uh, news release on this, a statewide roadmap that ties historically and culturally significant sites, locations, and events throughout the Empire State. Uh, why has... What, what have they done, and, and why did you say that you think it's uh, it's been a joke? Well, once upon a time when he was riding back and forth between Westchester, where he lives, and the executive mansion where he works, he was looking out on the uh, New York State Thruway, and he had this epiphany about signs, that what we needed were signs showing these historic sites, and people then would get off the highway and go visit these historic signs, uh, historic places. And that's really the genesis of this project. And I was there in 2011 in Albany at the kickoff, at the inaugural of it, and there was a lot of enthusiasm about it. And the idea was that there would be these paths, these tourist paths, that people would go to, and people would take these trips, say, in the Mohawk Valley. Like I did a teacher hostel in the Mohawk Valley, and we started in Schenectady, and we worked our way west, and each day we went to a different community like Amsterdam and so on, and we visited the places there, and we talked with the people there. And that's not at all what happened. Mainly what you had were some signs up on the highway, and then more and more signs because people who weren't on the interstates but were on other highways wanted to have their name recognized too. So it was mainly for signs. And then with signs, because we have new technology, we have a website, which as far as I can tell is hardly ever used except for like people, you and me, when we're looking to do research about it. But it does. I did a, a post a few weeks ago about the civil rights movement in the South. And interestingly there, the 
I think it was about 10 or 11 states, a lot of the Confederacy, their, their tourist departments, got together with their economic development people and the history people. They worked through a college and worked with actual history professors, identifying sites related to civil rights in the South and coming up with a website and directions on how to go from one site to another, which we don't have. We just list the sites. And that's the kind of teamwork that you need involving not just a government putting up a sign or even a website that hardly anyone knows about, but working together with the academic field, working with the history community to to promote this. Hmm. And none of that ever happened. Really what it is is there used to be something called Museum Weekend back in May. And that was one weekend when historic museums were asked to do something. What happened is a lot of upstate museums weren't really open in May because they still had snow issues. So mm. they decided to remo to move it to a warmer time, which they did in June, and they changed the name to Path to History. But it's the same museum weekend. And these are all local events. I was at a recent meeting of the uh, Tourism Advisory Council, which is actually a public meeting, and I'm the only person from the public in all the years I've been going who ever attended them. Everyone else is from the tourist industry. And at the last one, and I'm going to be writing about this, so you're getting a preview of an upcoming post. They had someone from the tourist industry who analyzed visitor numbers. Did you ever hear of these visitor numbers like tourism is up 8%, 10%, all this stuff? Mm -hmm. yeah. And this person was explaining, what does that really mean? How do you do that? And he said that there were worldwide standards that had been used. And essentially, under 50 miles is called a day trip. And that means these are people who go out for the day, maybe with the family. They drive to a place, and then they drive home. So there's no lodging involved. There's no revenue from that. There's no sales tax. There's no lodging tax. These are day trips. And that's basically what the path through history is. It's people visiting their local sites. It's a perfectly good idea. We have the Ramble here in the Hudson Valley that does something similar over the four weekends in September. And there's nothing wrong with connecting people from the local community to their local history sites. But that's not what the path through history was intended to do. It was intended to increase tourism and bring in revenue, and it doesn't do that. Let me bring up another issue that I know you've uh, uh, written about. Uh, New York State's uh, municipal historians. Uh, apparently, th there's a law that says a, a community, a town, a village, a city is supposed to have an historian, and many of them do, some don't. Um, how is that program working? Well, there's another perfect example. We're coming up on the centennial. I think you've had Carol Kamen and as well as Bruce on your show talking about municipal historians. Well, it started in 1919. I think, as Carol pointed out, uh, returning World War One veterans talking about their experiences and from all the different communities. So we're coming up on the centennial of our historian's law. And what are we going to do for it? I don't know if we're going to do anything for it, but that just shows part of the problem. You're right. This is an unfunded mandate, and it's not observed. There are many counties that have no historian, as well as some of the cities and towns and villages. So it's a problem. One of the problems is, and here's where we get down to having an advocacy, what is it exactly that these historians are supposed to do? 
Mm. And Bruce has written about that. I've written about that. And if you say, here's what a person's supposed to do. Like, uh, let's say they're supposed to have an electronic newsletter come out monthly or quarterly, which some counties do. Well, that technology obviously didn't exist back then, but it does now. Or have a county history conference. Oneida is going to have one in April, and uh, Broome County is going to do one soon. Why don't all counties, excuse me, all counties do that? So if you come up with a list of things that these people are supposed to do, then you can say, well, how much time does it take to do that? It takes 10 hours or 20 hours. Or if you're a village of 5,000, you do this. And if you're a city of 50,000, you do that. Once you come up with what these people are supposed to do as historians and adjust for the different size of the community, then you can say, this is not something you can ask a volunteer to do. This is the person who needs to be paid to do this because it takes 20 hours a week or 30 hours a week. Or imagine what it would take in the five boroughs. Imagine you have one historian for two million people right? compared to, say, one in Amsterdam or some other or Schenectady or wherever else. Well, I do note so that, uh, Schenectady that list, just appointed, uh, Schenectady just appointed a new historian and he's not uh, being paid. Um, yeah. And, and here's the, well, let me, you know, put in a word for the other side, if you will. I mean, th there's certainly a counter argument. Or, I mean, there are pe or people that say, what, spending state money on, on this? What, what, what's, the, what's the point of that? You know, they, they should fix the roads, the bridges, and hire more police officers and so forth. Well, here's where I compare Paul Tonka to Governor Cuomo. And the two, and Paul has been, uh, he's, a, he's a congressman from the northern Albany area, or north of Albany. And he's received some awards from this municipal, uh, excuse me, uh, Manny, the state organization I was referring to earlier. And what it is, is I call it the it's a wonderful life syndrome where you have to look at really the social fabric of the community, that people have a sense of place, a sense of belonging, a sense of community, that they know their neighbors and that they feel a connection to them. And history is part of that process. That's why I compare it with the schools and the libraries. They all work together to develop this sense of community. And having that health is very important, but it's hard to quantify. So Paul understands that. You can't have everything just based on transaction. You can't say, well, what does a library contribute to the community? How would you quantify that? You know, that's pretty difficult to do, but we all know that this community is better for having a library than for not having a library. And I think the same applies to historical organizations if we use them properly and if they are part of the education of the children in the community and part of the civic fabric, then you would see that it really does help make a community healthy. And in effect, it also encourages people to want to come see these communities because the places you like to go usually aren't the ones that are broken down, they're usually the places that are working in the places where people enjoy living there and like to show off what they have, and they're proud of their heritage. And we take that away from them by diminishing the importance of history. Well, certainly uh, Paul Tonko uh, is well known. Uh, one one thing he did, you know, to uh, continue to push for this, for the pedestrian bridge, the Mohawk Valley Gateway Overlook they now have in Amsterdam, and not only just making the bridge, you know, something people would walk out on 
this uh, walkway and, and see the river and see the beautiful valley. But he's really uh, it, it's chock full of, of his history, though. And I think that, you know, there are others who worked on it, but I think he's in large part responsible for it. Yeah, he understands it. He he uh, he understands the role of history, and he's been an advocate for it. Of course, he's at the congressional level, not at the state level, because we used to have a Mohawk Valley Consortium, and I used to go up there for their conferences that they would have at the community college in uh, in Fulton, and that was the plug was pulled on that. So, and as a matter of fact, the Mohawk Valley doesn't even exist as a entity in I Love New York. It's just called Central New York. Well, Peter, we're just out of time. I thank you very much for being uh, with us. Uh, be reading Peter Feynman's blogs on the New York History blog. Uh, Peter is a founder and president of the Institute of History, Archaeology, and Education. He lives uh, in the Hudson Valley. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.